Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You want to think that everyone in a school is there to help kids, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Welcome to Manic Rambling Spiral. I am John R. Bray. And I am Heather B. Armstrong. This week, we are again graced with another voice, so you don't have to just listen to Heather and I cover Cheesecake Factory, Beyonce, Free Range Kids, etc. in a very short window. But we are joined today by a very good friend of mine, Emily, who works in early childhood inclusion, specifically birth through third grade. And she is also a single parent of a son with special needs. So today, we'll probably still spiral because that's just what happens, but we have kind of a direction, sort of. And I could probably ramble and give an introduction for Emily that would be half correct and half not. So I will hand it over to to her. So Emily, if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do. I was kind of hoping to hear what you were going to say. <laughs> so I want to <laughs> no, no. hear the part. No. We could do two truths and a lie, and I'll just pretend the things that are lies are true, which would be pretty interesting. That would have that yeah. worked, yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm Emily, and um, so I've worked in the field of early childhood education for about 22 years now. Um, I started off in Oregon working um, – at a university's lab school. And I was studying to be an English major. I wanted to be a writer. And um, I got a job at that preschool. And as I was working there, I was like, oh, no, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it was a cool, really cool program, super, super diverse, super inclusive of everybody. Um, True to Portland in the 90s, a lot of things were going on. And I liked that. And we had kids with disabilities in the program, and they had um, providers coming in and supporting the kids and the teachers. And I was like, that's that's totally what I'm going to do. So I went to grad school and learned to do early intervention, which is um, special education services for children with disabilities and their families in their home. Um, So birth to three, and then I was doing classroom-based stuff too. So I spent some time traveling rural Oregon, doing home visits, um, which was a pretty, pretty interesting experience. That was the 90s when the whole um, meth crisis was happening. So I was dealing a lot with kids that were born drug affected and their families and kids in care and that kind of stuff. Um, But I ended up moving back to Illinois because um, my father was sick with cancer. And then I just ended up staying here. So um, I continued doing early intervention, and then I've worked in programs all over the state, a lot in Chicago, and um, so that's my career kind of 
aspect. And then I had a son in 2009. And that's where my journey as a parent and a professional kind of started, which was interesting. Well, it's interesting that someone in working in that field had a child with special needs. So you're very familiar with it, but then you really start to actually see it from the other perspective too. Yeah, totally. So a lot of people that I work with um, came to the field because they had a child with a disability. So they were like a general education teacher, and then they ended up having a child with Down syndrome, and it kind of shifted their focus like, oh, I, I need to know more about this. And then they got involved, and they just stuck with it. Um, but yeah, it was totally different to be – I knew he was not – typically developing from a really young age because I was a developmental therapist. That's what I did for so long. And so he's pro he was probably less than six months old when I started realizing that I like to use the word not neurotypical. So he wasn't having typical responses to a lot of things. And since that's what I did for a living, I was like, okay, I can't get him on a sleep schedule. He's having a really hard time with a lot of things. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, here we go. But then the whole process after that was just, it's crazy to be on the other side of the table. And I always think about parents, like I want to support them in meetings so much because even though I was a professional, like that almost did me no good in the first couple of rounds of meetings I had because it's so, so hard to have people talk about your child. My older daughter, who's now 14 and dancing, didn't put weight on her legs until she was almost a year old. Mm -hmm. And we did physical therapy and occupational therapy. And then we had to qualify, actually, for early intervention. I would, I would write about these sort of slow developments on her end. And everybody online was like, she's, she's on the spectrum. She's autistic. And... And then we had people at the hospital here telling us one thing and then the physical therapist telling another thing. And it was a very, very confusing time and not knowing what what the, the problem or the diagnosis was. Yeah. And then you have, you like you said, you have people who are just other parents who can see things yeah. in your child that are similar with theirs, whether they're true or not, or they're able to make that decision or not, but then you have professionals giving you different opinions too. And you just don't know like which voice to have surface to the top. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember going in to my son's first IEP meeting and I totally froze. There's a table of like, I don't know, six or seven people. And I used to do that job. I used to evaluate kids and give them their eligibility criteria and share my observations of what I saw in their child. And I had read the reports beforehand. I had asked them to send them to me so I could review them, um, which every parent should do. You have the right to do that. And it's important to do it because you have to sit with it. You have to read it because if you read it in the meeting, you're just stuck. Like you stop hearing everything everyone's saying. But I share that story every time I present to programs and I'm working with people like, look, this is what I did for a living. And I, when I went in that meeting, I stopped listening halfway through, even though before I did the evaluation, I knew what they were going to say, because I knew what the evaluation was and I knew what the outcomes were going to be. Um, and I had read the report. So if that happened to me, imagine if like you never met a kid who was on the spectrum, 
or right. you've never you can't read the report because they're hard enough to read if you know what they're saying, but most of the time they're fucking nightmares. So like if you can't <laughs> read it and understand it, then you're not really a full member of that team. You're never going to be really able to give your insight and your opinion and advocate for your child if you can't even understand what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So it's been a really interesting perspective for me to have, and I'm so much more fierce for parents now. So I always advocated for them, but now it's just like this, we have to do more. And you're continuing in this work, correct? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I work um, um, just specifically for um, three to five-year-olds um, supporting inclusion. Across the state of Illinois. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're statewide. Well, and I, I think when you were talking before, and for anyone who doesn't know, IEP and- Oh, I, sorry. I'll yeah. probably fuck this up. It's individual education plan. Yeah. Individualized, it, something mm -hmm. to that effect. Yeah. Okay, I can never remember exactly. But I think, you know, you mentioned reading the report. I think, unfortunately, and I don't so much think this, I've experienced this, sometimes the people in those meetings also- are kind of expecting, if not hoping, that you don't fully understand it. Because then they can present potential solutions to kind of pass it off. And I'm not saying that as a blanket. There are a lot of amazing people. But there are others, I think, who try to fast-track things or brush things aside. Mm -hmm. And for parents who really are uneducated in that area or unable to understand the report, it's really easy for that to happen. Or not even know your rights. I mean, they give you a copy of your rights, yes. but actually taking time to make sure families can like read it and understand what it actually means. And it's so crazy. Like people know what I do for a living. And I remember going to a meeting, actually it was before I had a meeting, we were supposed to have a parent teacher conference and the speech pathologist called me at home and she's like, yeah, I would like to turn his parent teacher conference into a domain meeting, which is more of a formal meeting about your IEP to change services, add services, adjust it, right? And I was like, well, I didn't get written notice, and I want this to be a parent-teacher conference, not that. I just want to be a mom hearing about how her son's doing in first grade. And she's like, whoa, you, you sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I was like, um, fuck you. Because that means that like you were hoping I didn't. So if I mm -hmm. didn't know that I had a right to that, I could have had that meeting and she wanted to drop services. So if I didn't know that, like I would have been like, okay, I don't, sure, because you're a professional. And it pissed me off so much. I was like, how dare you be like, oh, you sound like you know something. Yeah. Right. Because she was hoping that you didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she also said. You know, he just he just doesn't seem like a special ed kid. And I was super, super, super offended by that. Number one, what's a special ed kid? Right. And number two. What does one seem like? Yeah. <laughs> number two, you've known him for like four weeks or over five, well, maybe five weeks, a couple. Like, so she's seen him five or six times for 20 minutes. So she knows him. And is that an insult? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, what do you, what do you mean by that? How do you make a statement? That's, that's what really like gets me super, super fired up when I'm working with districts is we've dehumanized 
children in a lot of ways because we'll say like, well, he's autistic or, you know, he's a Downs kid or he just does really spectrumy stuff. And we start isolating mm-hmm. behaviors or characteristics away from someone who's a human being and so much more than that. Um, and I, I originally got in this field too because it, I, it's so much a part of social justice. There's, there's so much social justice in special education because there's parents having their rights being denied. And then there's this whole other area where children who are of color mostly and of color and in poverty that are way over-identified. So we have to like, I think that's our growing edge in this field is we have to find that balance between advocating really hard. So kids who have needs are getting their needs met while at the same time making sure that we're not just identifying anyone who needs some extra support. So it's kind of like, it's an interesting balance that we have to try to find. Was that speech therapist wanting to take away services from your child? Yeah. Cause she yeah. just couldn't see it. She's like, I just don't see it. And I said, well, how are you providing services? And she's like, well, he has always had social emotional challenges. And when he was really little, they thought pretty clearly that he was on the spectrum. And I saw that too. I still see things that are on the autism spectrum in him, but a lot of people have some rigidity in their thinking or obsessive thinking. But from her perspective, where he was at now, she's like, I just don't see it. But she'd only provide services one-on-one with him at that point. And he's never had a challenge talking to adults. In fact, that is the challenge he has is he only wants to talk to adults (laughs) because they're predictable and they understand what he's talking about. So it's never been a hard, he could, he could probably be on this podcast and you'd be like, okay, cut. (laughs) (laughs) Stop talking. I mean, you know him, John, he has no trouble communicating with adults. Well, no. And that's, that's one of the challenges I think about, about kids like your son is that you could you could easily sit down and have you know a half an hour conversation with him and he's really talkative really intelligent super sharp and you'd walk away and never think mm-hmm. anything of it right so i think for for people who don't know him that are in that you know the education space they look and say well no he's fine he's great but then there is and i i don't even see all of it mm-hmm. But but just knowing you and and in bits and pieces, there is that emotional piece, although that you realize is not at the same level as the intellectual piece. Although, can we tell the story about him and Lexton? <laughs> we came over to John's house, and they were hanging out, and they're doing a bunch of crazy stuff. And they're they have what are they six years apart? Yeah. Yes, five, yeah, five and a half, six. And so they're having an awesome time, and we had to go. It was like, we're done. It's time to go. And there's one more thing that my son wanted to do, and we just couldn't do it anymore. And I was like, we're going to come here again. It's going to be fine. And he totally lost his shit. He was like crying, 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 and you're the worst mom, and blah, blah, blah. So we go, and we're standing by the doorway, and I don't know what he forgot or something. Do you remember what he forgot that he that your guy brought to him? No, I don't know if it was. No, yeah, you, he had brought something like a remote control, some toy, something. Yeah. My son's crying and crying and crying. And Lexton came into the area 
And my son was like, <clears throat> thanks a lot. And totally just <laughs> dropped his voice, stopped crying. And that was the first time I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You are socially aware enough to stop right now, which means you've changed. <laughs> Because you're embarrassed to cry in front of a cool dude and you lowered your voice. So wait, do you remember we talked about that? I was like, something has changed. Oh, yeah. It was like at the snap of a finger. Thanks. (laughs) It's interesting that that you'd get this basically a call saying, you know, we don't want to provide services, which is which is kind of veiled. And well, I don't really think he needs them, but also probably along the lines of. Doing extra requires more from us. So if we don't have to, we don't want to. Right. And so, yeah, there's part of that. Um, and then part of it, too, is they always have to dis- they have to show that the disability is interfering with their participation at school in an age-appropriate way. So from her perspective, his challenges with social-emotional issues and social communication do not impact him educationally at all, except that they do. So I challenged her and I said, well, I need you to provide services on the playground and the lunchroom and in the classroom because that's where things fall apart with him. He's going to be fine with you. And probably he's dominating the conversation, but he's charming as fuck. So you don't even notice that, wait a minute, we've been talking about your topic for 45 minutes now. Um, so I pushed her to, to to do the work where he was challenged. And then she kind of was like, okay, yeah, I can kind of see it now. And now, this is a year later, they're starting to see it more and more as other kids are becoming more sophisticated that he's still dominating conversations and missing a lot of social cues. And that gets harder and less tolerated by kids the older you get. So mm-hmm. like now... I mean, eight-year-old boys kind of don't notice a lot of things, um, so they're not noticing it. But as you go forward in school and there's group work to be done and one person's talking the entire time and telling you possibly that your idea is stupid, it's not going to work as well for him. But I think if I didn't know – well, first of all, I wouldn't have known that she was supposed to give me written notice. I wouldn't have known um, that they can't change a meeting like that. You know, I wouldn't have known all these things if I weren't in the field. So I did, I met with the principal and I, I laid out every time my rights had been broken or things had been said to me that offended me or were not appropriate. And she was appalled because they're not at every meeting. So they don't always know what's actually happening. Um, so she, I was fortunate that she was happy that I did that. I didn't know if she was going to be like, oh, this fucking mom is going to be here for three more years. Because you do get that sense, like you say, when you're in the field and they know you're in the field, you get that sense that they're like, okay, we can't screw up now. We can't. We got to bring our A game. Which is gross. Right. They should feel that way every time they meet with someone's child. Mm-hmm. So I'll just, I, I haven't really shared a whole lot about this, but... Um, I've talked multiple times, you know, and Heather, you and I have talked about just the, the challenges of, of homework and school and motivation. And Lexton is a super bright kid, does not engage in school at all. He, he doesn't really learn in a lecture setting. Sitting for eight hours straight is really challenging for him. 
he's not not disruptive or or mean he just essentially just tunes out and will come home with an assignment notebook that's half complete if that does not remember the lesson etc etc which that's why the the math tutor is in place just to kind of add extra support there but Basically, what I started to realize, and I, I think I mentioned this several episodes ago, was that he has some some ADD or ADHD, I guess, is the new the new naming. But so anyway, after talking with you, Emily, I you know went in and and had him diagnosed with with ADHD, and with the whole goal of trying to get him some supports in school, which in my case would have been a, a five hundred four plan, um, which. In, th- in theory, is actually not all that complicated. It's a pretty straightforward process. People know what they need to do. It's easy. And everything was going along just fine with that. Um, and, and part of that process was that my hex, the other Heather, and I had to meet with the school psychologist to kind of initiate this process. And he spent a good 10 minutes of that meeting preaching to us about the value of medication, which neither of us were opposed to, but didn't want to pursue until we knew that we needed that option. And we told him that. And then about a month and a half later, this man calls Lexton down to his office and proceeds to tell him as a minor, as a 13 year old boy, that he needs medication, that he should talk to his parents about getting medication and that if he took medication, his grades would improve. So this all happened. I didn't even know this meeting was happening. Then I pick him up from school, and he's really worried because the idea of just suddenly getting medication is something he's not familiar with. He has friends who are on whatever medications for ADD, and they're tired all the time. So he's in a panic about this. And had I not, honestly, had I not known you, Emily, Everything that has happened since then would have gone drastically different. I knew it was wrong, but I didn't fully know all of my rights or options. And even that in itself is frustrating because I don't even want to think about what wouldn't have happened if I didn't know you. I mean, was that illegal? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Every part of it. Yes. <laughs> I, when you sent me that text, I like broke out a sweat. Because first of all, no. And to think about putting a child, he's in eighth grade, but he's still a child, to put him in a position where he needs to question who he is as a person, feel like this person who he doesn't know thinks that there's something wrong with him that could be fixed with medication, and to put him in a position where he's supposed to tell his parents I'd be doing better if I took medication. I was in such a rage because I I would feel that for any child, but especially because I know him. He is such a beautiful human being and so sensitive. And he probably took that so to heart. Oh, he did. And there, the, the worst thing is there's no relationship with, with this guy. Right. It, this was the first time he's right. ever met with him ever. So if it was... Not that it would ever be okay, but if it was a teacher he'd had for three years, at least they would have some sort of foundation. But that didn't even exist. And the thing that makes me so upset is that based on things that were going on in school for him, they should have been supporting him already. 
Someone should have come to you and suggested a 504 plan. It shouldn't have gotten to the point where you had to. Just some of your communication, too, from the school, um, back and forth. And both of the districts where John and I live have very, very strong reputations, really strong reputations. And they both have tremendous amount of funding, huge competition for staff to work here. I remember someone telling me, that for an open position at the early childhood program where I live, they get about 800 applications per job. So, and some, yes. And, and another nearby, um, high school, they got 1200 applications for a part-time gym teacher. It's very, very competitive. So to me, I'm like, these are supposed to be the best people in the field. Mm-hmm. We should, you know, not that it makes an excuse anywhere else, but if this is happening here, can you even imagine what's happening where maybe there's not as much competition for employment, there's not enough people monitoring what's going on in their programs? And it shouldn't have happened. Nothing that has happened with your son should have happened. So explain what a 504 plan is. So it's it's accommodations and modifications that you can get. So it's actually a lifespan. So you can have a 504 plan as an adult in your workplace if you have ADHD or another kind of condition that um, requires you to have some kind of accommodations. A lot of times they're medically based. So if a child has asthma or um diabetes or other kinds of medical concerns and they need some sort of accommodations, it it holds it in place. So they're generally not for um, children who have complex needs and usually not for children who have cognitive challenges. So if you have a medical diagnosis for ADHD, a lot of times you'll get a 504 plan, which just lays out, you can take a test in another room where you're not distracted. You can have someone like write down your assignments for you, anything that would help you be successful. I actually saw somebody yesterday tweeting about this, um, complaining that someone at her university who suffers from ADD um, got to take exams in a separate room. And how was that fair? And people were just, were like, are you seriously questioning this? Like, like, like she's incapable of taking a test unless she's in a room by herself and you're questioning this. Like people took, took her to a task where I, I saw that just yesterday. And th- it's a conversation that we have actually at the early childhood level with children, because that's a very young response to something like that. Like a lot of yeah. times in early childhood classrooms, if someone gets to, s- gets to sit in a chair and right. you sit on the floor, we just say fair is getting what you need, not having the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's what being fair is getting what you need. Fair is not always equal. And kids understand that, but adults don't. So much in our work is about adult attitudes. If you come into a classroom with a child and they're in a wheelchair and they have a nurse and they've got a trach and they've got machines and you just say, this is so-and-so, that's her chair and that's how she gets around. Sometimes her machine will beep and it sounds like this. And this is how she talks. You talk with your mouth, she's going to talk with a switch, and you can say hi to her. The kids are like, cool, got it. Adults in the room would be like, what happened? Is she going to die? 
Like adults always have all these problems. Or they're like, um, oh, that, you know, that's too loud. Or why? You exactly. Know, we have to deal with why that. She, I don't want to hear that beeping yeah. all Why day. does she get to have a nurse? <laughs> Sorry, that was a really bad joke. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, that, that's actually honestly what I was thinking. Like, why does this kid get to have someone with them all the time? Yeah. But I had never heard it put like how you said it, that fair is getting what you need. Yeah. Not being equal. Yeah. And when... I mean, I, I think about it like the in, in the case of that tweet, Heather, I'm sure that the girl that got to go to that that gets to go to a different classroom to take a test would rather just stay in the same damn room to take right. the test because it's easier. Or and also because, like, you know, attention is being drawn to her for the fact that she's she's going exactly. to take it in another room. And for for Lexton and it's I, I went through all of the same stuff with people being really dismissive there were some very responsive people within the district but at one point the the principal of his school even called and and at first i thought the phone call was actually okay because he had he has at least somewhat of a relationship with my son and he called him down just to find out what happened from his perspective and to get the story and and the the phone call was fine until we got to the end and and at this point i had already scheduled a meeting with people at the district to talk about this issue and at the end of the phone call with the principal, I realized the entire goal was to get me to cancel that meeting with the district. Because really, we didn't need it. Everything was fine. And he he didn't even need to be at that meeting. Like, it didn't really affect him. But I think he just knew that if things went kept moving forward, it would at some point mean he had to do something extra. Like whether it was just paperwork or sitting and helping in a, in a 504 planning meeting or whatever the case may be. And that was his approach, which was basically, wow, we really fucked up and I'm sorry, but let's just move on. Which is crazy to me. Especially because you can't take back the ideas you put in Lexton's mind. Because he probably still every once in a while thinks about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss it's so frustrating to have gone through the the conversation with the school psychologist about medication already without lexton in the room and already told him our position that you know we haven't ruled it out but not yet and then still have him talk to him about it we already we already told you our stance, and now you're telling him he should go home and tell us about it. It, do, it just doesn't make any sense. But I think for him, if in in his mind, and 
some of the examples that he gave in, in the meeting with, with Hex and I were ridiculous. He could just, he could put my son on medication and then wash his hands of it. And that was it. Like then he wouldn't actually have to do anything extra. What a work ethic. Because I, it's an amazing work right. ethic. Well, it's, it's, it's funny and in a not super funny way, but I mean, despite, despite being really bright, Lexton's grades are really not great at all in, in basically every subject. And the first meeting that we had with this, with this psychologist, he said, well, I have students who have autism and they get bees. <sighs> and I, I remember just sitting there and I said, okay, but my son is not getting bees and he doesn't have autism. So I don't actually see the connection. But it's like his point was if this other kid with I presumably a bigger challenge can can be okay, then you don't need anything. And it just it it just blows my mind. Like you you think that everyone you you want to think that everyone in a school is there to help kids, but it doesn't seem to be the case. And like you said, I'm in a good district mm-hmm. and I'm white and my son is white. I was just about to say. I was just about just to say that. About too. To say. <laughs> Yeah. And I think like, I can't imagine, I mean, I'm jumping all these hurdles from a very privileged standpoint. Like, and I, I recognize that, but I can't fathom what it's like to not at least have that. Oh, oh yeah. And then there's so many times where they, you know, they schedule a meeting for you and then they send the letter. Well, 99% of the world can't go to their boss and say, I need to leave in the middle of the day, and I don't know how long I'm going to be gone on this day. That's not the way most jobs work. And then if parents don't show up for the meeting or they can't do it, then they get labeled as a parent who doesn't care without the understanding that for a lot of people, being able to do that is a huge ask. It's a huge ask to to just randomly schedule someone during the times that work for the school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I have thought about this a lot lately that I think I talked about this with you, John, that a lot of my son's early stuff, I think, was due to trauma. So I think a lot of his emotional stuff um, was due to his dad and I separating when he was really young. And that's something that would have come up if I had been in let's say a program that's based on income. So there's a lot of like Head Start. In Illinois, we have preschool for all. And some of the guidelines for being um, eligible for those programs is income. And when they intake you, they do all kinds of questionnaires and they go through all these risk factors. Well, I actually meet a ton of the risk factors. Single parent, the father's not in the picture at all. Just a lot of, a lot of risk factors. But no one asked me, at all. And I really think like if, if I had been in poverty and I had gone in through those systems, his experience at school would have been different and their perspective on him would have been completely different too. Cause they would have been coming out of perspective of this is a single mom. There's no father figure, um, in the picture they're struggling. Um, they just moved all of those things would have been in play in the conversations around the table, but it never got touched. And I just reflect on that. Because they just assumed it wasn't an issue? Yeah, I really do, because they never went there with me. No one asked me about my mental health at all. 
And that would have been a conversation because a lot of those programs have like family workers and home visiting as part of their wraparound care. So all of that stuff would have been tapped into, but it wasn't. Why do you think they didn't explore it though? I th- Well, number one, I come across as a lot more competent than I am. <laughs> I think because I'm in the field because of where I live. Yeah, I just, I don't think it ever came up. And I'm still trying to sort out my son's dad and I separated when he was two and a half. And I moved, we were living in Chicago, and then I moved out um, to live with family because I couldn't fathom the idea of of living by myself with him in the city. I, don't, I couldn't have afforded it anyways, and there's just tons of factors around that. So we moved out here. And then less than a year later, his dad wanted to get back together again. And I was like, no, we cannot. It's not good for any of us for that to happen. He's like, well, we're not going to get back together. I'm going to leave. Again, I was like, that's not a good idea. You can't do that. You cannot do that to our son. He's like, well, I'm going to. So he left the country. He's from Mexico and he moved back. Um, And he's been gone ever since. And I think that part of his story for any child, that's really hard to reconcile. But it also happened right around that time when you're three and you're trying to figure out your world and security is like everything. It was just Mm -hmm. a lot for his brain to process. So he already had those challenges, but I think that just compounded everything. But it's not something that anyone's ever suggested or explored with me. And I think it's a huge, it's been a huge impact on his development. Absolutely. It, it seems like it should be, it seems like the assumption should be that you might need all of those things. And then through questioning, if they realize you don't, then that's fine. I don't know. I feel like more often than not, they make the assumption that maybe those extra services or considerations aren't needed. And I think a lot of people in a position to need them either don't think to ask or are embarrassed to ask mm-hmm. or don't know to ask. Yes. And then they're stuck. And then, I mean, that's just what perpetuates this ridiculous cycle. Yeah. And I don't, I think it was last year. So first grade, his three year reevaluation was the first time a social worker asked me if I was getting support for myself. It's the first time the flip. So there's two things. There's assumptions that certain types of people don't need support that they're fine, they're going to figure it out because they appear to have resources that other people don't. And sometimes they do have resources, but not necessarily mental health resources. And then the flip side of that is if you're in poverty and you're in these programs, your whole life is on display for people to judge. And a lot of times that starts creating biases towards people and towards their children. And so I've been reflecting on this just in my own life, that I think if I were in a different situation, a lot of what was going on with my son would have been blamed on me. Like, okay, well, she's in this situation, so he's acting out because she's, you know, she's single or, Mm -hmm. wow, his dad is Mexican and he abandoned their family, so he must be, you know what I mean? Like everything would have been put on us rather than explored from a purely diagnostic way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm in this constant state of reflection between like my own experiences and how that 
comes across and how those things are impacted by other people who aren't in the same position that I'm in. Well, and you see that. Oh, all the time. I mean, with the schools that you work with is you see people being treated in that way. Mm -hmm. Especially I was doing a lot of work um, in Chicago in two different schools. One was on the west side of Chicago. One was on the south side of Chicago. And the amount of trauma that the children and the families had been experienced for, for their lifetimes, both of their lifetimes, was always like, I don't want to say it was, it wasn't always used as a form of judgment, but it, it sometimes lowered people's standards for what their expectations were going to be for kids rather than providing a school environment that helped kids heal their trauma, have safe places to act out, get the help they need. And for families to do the same, sometimes it just turned into classrooms that were basically behavior management classrooms with kids in there who were gifted. So I remember getting called in to a classroom because a teacher just could not cope with this child. He was a first grader, always acting out, flipping his desk over, doing all kinds of crazy shit. And those are my favorite kids. They are always my favorite kids. So I was like, absolutely, I would love to spend time with him. So I hung out in the classroom. I watched him do his shit. And he was doing some pretty crazy shit to get attention, but actually really just to get out of the room. So he got kicked out, and he get, got called what I call it like a soft suspension. So he got sent to the office for the morning, which is abhorrent. It should never happen. So much, so many times that's happening, and kids are losing huge chunks of instructional time. So I, I followed him to the office and I just hung out with him and he was super, super pissed. And I totally understood why. But after hanging out with him for about 20 minutes, I was like, um, how old are you? And he was the right age to be in first grade. I just wanted to make sure because it was a Catholic school and sometimes kids bop around and they get put in the wrong grade. He was so off the charts gifted. Like <laughs> I just start pulling stuff. Um, off the shelves, a book off the shelf. I'm like, let's read this together. Let's talk about this. Let's do this. So he was just bored. And he had he had been able to do all these things and they kept like dumbing down his curriculum and not being able to provide him with the level of support because they were just looking at his behavior. They're just looking at one dimension of what was going on. And because there were so many other kids in the classroom that were dealing with tons of emotional stuff and they were all acting out, it just got lost in the shuffle. And I always think about him because if he were in a different circumstance or he was in a school that was better functioning, he wouldn't have been seen as a, a child with behavior problems because he really didn't. Who wouldn't act down in that situation? Right. He was probably, <laughs> yeah, he was probably at a fourth or fifth grade reading level and they were doing phonics work. I would flip my fucking desk if you made me do phonics work. <laughs> I like how you put it like a safe space to lose their shit and process the trauma that they've been through. Mm -hmm. We recently had a conversation with my friend Kelly who worked in education for years and years and years. And she talked about an interaction that she had with a kid who under his breath called her a bitch after she had told him to go back into a classroom and everybody around her was like, you can't let him get away with that. And she's like, he went back into the classroom. I'll get to that later. 
you know, like he did it because he wanted to be cool in front of his friends. But what she did is she, you know, she called her into her, her office later and was like, listen, you call me a bitch. You're not going to get away with that. You know, you know better than to do that. And he's like, you know, I'm sorry. You know, I'm, I, I was just around my friends and I, I wanted to be cool. And she developed this rapport with him where he trusted her. He came to school and he was able to trust someone. She said that like, and even like a few weeks later, he came to her rescue when, when she was about to get jumped by a group of kids. And wow. she was all about like, let's create these safe. She's like, and actually calling me a bitch under his voice was age appropriate behavior. Like that's what they do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it's worth mentioning too. I mean, I think it's anytime you, any knee jerk response really is typically garbage. Yeah, I I was but. thinking of this story that a colleague told me that she was in a classroom and this kid was in a conflict with other children. He was like, I fucking hate you. This is like kindergarten. And the teacher <laughs> <laughs> and the teacher went over and got on his level and she's like, I'm really, really proud of you. And the person doing the observation was like, What the fuck? She's like, I know you really wanted to hit him. I know you really did. I'm so proud of you for using using words instead. Now let's start thinking about some different words we can use. And it was this beautiful situation where she she had been working with him so long that she realized like it took all of his effort just to tell someone to fuck off. Like it took every part of his being <laughs> to just be able to pull back and just do it. Like just be verbal at that point. And that's, I mean- it takes a special person to be able to get beyond yourself. And mm-hmm. when kids have oppositional behavior, it triggers oppositional behavior in adults because they start digging their heels in. You're like, I have to be bigger and I have to be in charge. So I'm going to dig my heels in and I'm going to start getting oppositional. And no one wins in that situation. Right. So you have to be able to you know, diffuse situations, but also respond to this really, really fragile child inside. So many of the kids who are acting out, especially kids um, in inner, especially in in Chicago, they are so stressed out. They're so stressed out, and they're so fragile inside. But the only option they have is to get big, and act in big ways to protect themselves. So if you get locked mm-hmm. into that. You're relating to the wrong part of that person. And it takes a really, it takes a unique person to be able to do that. But that's, you know, that's where, when I mentioned earlier that kids get overdiagnosed, they were headed down the road with that child that I was describing that was really gifted. They were heading down the road for um, getting evaluations for like emotional disturbance. Oh, wow. They were collecting all this data. They were doing all this stuff. And I was like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's look at your data about his academics first. And so we went through a whole process. We tested him. We got some stuff happening. But that's what they were responding to. No one looked at what was really causing his behavior. It wasn't random at all. His behavior was not random at all. It was really predictable. The challenge there, too, is that when they go down that route, like eventually this this kid just accepts, like, that's what it is. I have emotional trauma and I act out. Yeah. Because that's what everyone tells him. Mm-hmm. And and it's like then then kids almost mold themselves to fit mm-hmm. how everyone else sees them. Mm-hmm. And then everyone goes, see, we were right. Yeah. And it's, it's really not the case. It's interesting to me, though, that when you mentioned that a lot of times 
there, there's a lot of overdiagnosis with kids of color. And, and this is totally, I'm sure, an ignorant perspective, but from, from just my experiences, when a, when a kid is diagnosed, that requires extra work. So it's, it's strange to me that they would overdiagnose. It seems like it would be easier for them to ignore and just brush it under the rug than to overdiagnose. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what do you think? What is, the, what is the catalyst there? Why is it happening? Well, I think because we have separate settings in so many places for children who have special needs. So kids with disabilities tend, especially significant disabilities, tend to be educated in separate settings than children who are typically developing. There's a different funding stream for that. So if you make children oh. eligible and they get services, that services, those services are provided under special education. They don't take from your general education funding. But... Gotcha. You know, in early childhood, especially in programs that are for children who are at risk, they're supposed to screen kids and then evaluate them if their screening is at a certain level. But a lot of programs bring kids in for the screening and they see all these red flags and they go straight to an evaluation. But there's a question on the IEP that says this delay is not due to lack of instruction. You're supposed to check that box to make sure to prevent kids from being identified if they've never been in school before. So sometimes when kids fail screenings or can't do the things that are they're being asked to do, it's because they've never been taught how to. Mm. It's not a disability. No one's taught them yet. But because we're quick to jump to the, the evaluation, it will appear as though they have a disability, but it's just because no one's taught them. So if they got into a program and they were in a high quality program within a year, they'd be caught up. And that's where that over-identification, I think, starts. And then there's a lot of research, too, that once you get in, it's hard to get out of special education. Well, and you mentioned the separate classrooms, too, which is something that you try to fight against as well. I mean, that's the whole point of inclusion, right, is not isolating these kids. Right. Right. Especially in early childhood, there is so much research backing that children, even with significant disabilities, do better when they're with other kids. It seems really obvious because children learn from each other. So if you have a room with just children who are not talking, they're probably going to learn to talk more if they're in a room of 15 typically developing kids who are running around and talking, right? I remember seeing an interview with a dad whose son had autism and was not verbal, and they proposed putting his son in a room just for kids who had autism and were nonverbal. And he's like, I just don't get it. Where is he going to learn to talk if no one's talking in that room? It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the other kids in the room who are developing normally benefit from having, like, it's like just mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Across the board. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, um, I have a lot of anecdotal data, so not official data, but a lot of times kids who have behavior challenges, if if a child is included in their classroom who has more significant disabilities, their behavior improves because then they get to become a leader. They can support that other child. They learn to slow down. And there's something about building a community around everybody having 
something to contribute and everyone having strengths and everyone having things to learn that changes everybody. It supports everybody in, in doing like their personal best. Absolutely. Do you, do the schools out by you, Heather, do they, is it inclusive or do they have separate special ed classrooms or how do they, how does it work? I'm not sure exactly. Um, I, I'm pretty sure they, with Marlowe's school, it's, it's integrated within um, regular classrooms. I know that. I'm not sure if that's across the board, though. But Marlowe School is pretty a uh, progressive public school. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And it's gone, it seems like it's gone actually maybe both ways. And, and Emily, you might know this better, but with Lexton, I feel like in elementary, it was kind of both. I feel like there were separate classes, but then there was also integration, and maybe that's common mm-hmm. in, in terms of how it works. But I know he, it, I was, it was just, it was ridiculous. He was in fifth grade, I think. And he came home one day and he said he wasn't going to go out to recess on Thursdays anymore. I said, okay, well that's, that's your choice. Why? He said, well, I'm going to go into the special needs room and hang out with those kids because the teacher wanted some volunteers. So he, he gave oh, up wow. his, his recess Aww. to go in and, and make crafts with these kids or, you know, decorate, Christmas ornaments around the holidays or whatever. And he loved it. He, he loved being in there. And it was a him and I think he had two friends that went with. And I guess it was just maybe kind of the, re- the reverse mm-hmm. of, of including. But it was such a cool idea to me to ask these kids to come in and do that. And he got along really well with the teacher. And I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe that's opposite of what you strive for with what you do, Emily. But it seemed like a really cool thing to me. Well, it's a great starting place. I mean, I think we have to be careful not to make it seem, and I don't think Lexton's the kind of person who would take this away from it, but sometimes those situations become like pity. Like we have to go spend some time and do some cute things with these kids rather than these kids are your classmates. Yeah. Let's hang out together. Do you know what I mean? It really depends on how it's framed. Um, but really it's never the kids who have challenges. It's always the adults that have a hard time, including people. Right. It's mostly out of fear. And for teachers, most teachers, their resistance is not because they don't like kids with disabilities. It's because they're already so overworked and so stretched with so many demands on them and they're not prepared. You, you don't have enough coursework as a general education teacher to really know what to do to support children with disabilities. And so sometimes they get put in the position where they have children included in their classroom without enough support. And then they feel horrible about it. Teachers are the most type A, and I'm saying this as a teacher, type A perfectionist human beings out there. Really most of us are freaks and we want to do everything so perfectly and reach every kid and push every child to reach their potential. That's who most of us are. So if you have a situation where the child that you don't know how to teach, you don't know how to change your lesson plan to support them, you just end up feeling like a failure. And I think that's what starts building a resistance to inclusion is is situations where people haven't been supported well enough to, to teach to their own best ability. Interesting. 
What advice do you have to parents who might be facing, you know, an IEP or a 504 plan or inclusion issues with their special needs kids? And then what advice do you have for parents who, who maybe don't have special needs kids, but want to support inclusion? So for parents who have children with disabilities, I always recommend that you do not go to meetings alone. It's always helpful to have somebody else, whether they know anything about special education or not, just having people with you to support, take notes, ask different questions, and just their mere presence changes the tone of a meeting. And then I always like to remind parents that they have the right to stop a meeting at any time and reschedule it. Sometimes meetings are going in a direction you don't want it to go. They're too long. They're getting confusing. It's getting confrontational. You have the right to stop a meeting and reschedule it. And it's not something that anyone enjoys when you recommend doing, but it gives you time to process and really think about what's happening and what the right thing is to do for your child. And then for parents who don't have children with disabilities, one is to be really nice to parents who have kids with disabilities because it's so overwhelming. <laughs> It's so exhausting. Just be really nice. Um, and so many, so many kids are like my son and they have hidden challenges. So like you said, if you just saw me and my boy walking down the street, you would never know what challenges he has and has had. But when he does have challenges, it could appear that it's because of a shitty parent. And there are a lot of kids who have challenges that you can't see. So if you're out in public and you're at a park and a kid's having a meltdown, that person may not be a shitty parent. They might have a child who has really, really big challenges. And staring at them or commenting or hustling your child away from them just makes their stress level so, so high and alienates them even more. It's so lonely. I, you can't like, it's so hard to put into words how lonely it can be. And that's, and this is coming from someone who like, I knew what was going on with my son, but when he was really young, he, he would go into like attack mode at the playground, like absolute insano attack mode. And if I stopped paying attention for a second, all of a sudden I'd be like, oh shit, it's going down. And you just like annihilate somebody. And he's big. So I had all the time where people would judge me or look at me or like get really, really pissed at me. And that was like me being on him 24 hours a day, trying to predict what was going to happen, trying to control his environment, but also just trying to be a mom. It was so different from the experience of being a parent that I thought I was going to have. And it's okay. I don't want to change who he is. But every single part of his childhood was a hundred times harder than it would have been if he was a child who was flexible. If he was flexible in his environment, if he wasn't as sensitive to everything around him, if he didn't have those challenges, a trip to the park is a trip to the park. But when you have a child with special needs and rigidity, a trip to the park means planning for the right minute, having an escape plan. <laughs> like you have so many other things that you have to consider that nothing is just whatever it is that you're doing. So 
I think reaching out to compassion to people and being friends with the moms who are picking up their kids from school who are different, inviting them to your house, even if it means that the kid's going to do something probably inappropriate in your house, prepare your child for it, find a way that they can connect with each other. Even if it's like the, the child with a disability can handle 10 minutes of play, schedule 10 minutes so that parent gets to have a chance for their child to have a friend and an adult to talk to. That all makes sense. Amen. And it's really just basic empathy. Yeah. You think it's I mean, you think it's universal, but it's Well, right. Easier easier to to say than to do, but it it should be a basic a basic thing. Mm-hmm. And and in fairness, we all are shitty parents. Also. Well, yeah, I mean I suck, but I'm just saying you don't know that I suck. Just assume that I don't. Right. <laughs> don't don't assume that's the reason. Yeah. I mean that's part of it. But not all of it. Right. Well, this has been a great, a great conversation. I mean, I've, I've talked to you a lot about, about my, my challenges with, with Lexton and his, his district. But every time, every time we talk about it, I learn something new. So I really, I'm really glad you were able to, to join us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And we typically um, ask all of our listeners to you know send us any questions that they might have about the episode so if there's any questions specifically related to inclusion or you know maybe your your parents or you're a single parent of a child with special needs anything at all that uh you know maybe you just want to share or or pick our brains with definitely send us an email and and i can relay anything as um anything directed to emily to emily um, but you can email at stories at manicramblings.com or you can find us on Twitter and other places. Instagram, Shit. Facebook. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Manic Ramblings. I have said that like a hundred times. I don't know why, why that went. But uh, we always love to hear thoughts and interests or even if you just want to confirm that we are all in fact shitty parents. That's fine too. Many thanks to Tan Lines for the soundtrack, to Lisa Congdon for the cover art, and to Ryan Coomer for his expertise with the editing stuff. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.